Thank you, Mac, and uh, thanks to the Institute for your kind invitation to me. I, um, I hope you will forgive my expedient of uh, reading my text today, but I've been uh, ill recently. I'm still a little wobbly, so if I, if I heave over to one side, you'll I'll know what's, you. you'll try to catch my fall if you can, but if you don't mind, I'll, I'll read. Um, I'm doing a, uh, I guess as often happens with lectures, I'm doing a book on underappreciated and out of unfashionable people in history, at least at the moment, and uh, um, uh, Marshall and Allenbrook, I think, fall into the uh, underappreciated rather than unfashionable category, but I've been working out my thoughts about the whole idea, and, and Mac has very kindly allowed me to uh, uh, give you a little taste of what, what I'm trying to do. In the fall of 1943, can you hear me, by the way? In the fall of 1943, the big three of the Second World War, Joseph Stalin, Franklin Roosevelt, and Winston Churchill, met in Tehran 
it's a little difficult to imagine such a gathering in today's Tehran. Of course, this was three quarters of a century ago. A cross-channel invasion from Great Britain to France, which for different reasons Stalin and the American chiefs of staff had advocated since 1942, was decided upon at Tehran. And Stalin insisted that a commanding officer for what was to be called Operation Overlord be named. By 1943, the United States was the dominant partner in the Western Alliance, and so the choice would inevitably fall on an American officer. And indeed, the choice of commander seemed obvious at the time, General George C. Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff. General Marshall had been Chief of Staff since the very day of the German invasion of Poland in 1939, an interesting, although entirely accidental coincidence. And in the intervening four years, as Army Chief and Roosevelt's senior military advisor, it had been Marshall. His position, of course, as you undoubtedly know, before the consolidation of the services in 1947 was roughly analogous to Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff today. Um, it was Marshall who had built the wartime American Armed Forces practically from scratch, from parity with Romania in terms of size at any rate, into a fighting force on land, sea, and air that had realized FDR's 1937 vision of the United States as the arsenal of democracy. Roosevelt himself had thought that Church Marshall should command the invasion force. I hate to think, Roosevelt said on the subject, that 50 years from now, nobody will know who George Marshall was. So appreciative was Roosevelt of Marshall's achievements that he believed that Marshall had earned the right to command Overlord and told him so. People who worked with, or more likely under, George C. Marshall tended to form opinions like this about him. Dean Acheson, who was a harsh judge of men and served as both Marshall's subordinate and later cabinet colleague, said that the combination of Marshall's character, sagacity, capacious mind, and selfless service brooked only one comparison in American history, by which he meant George Washington. Dwight D. Eisenhower always said that the official personage he admired most in the war, indeed in the course of his army and public career, was General Marshall. But as we know, it was not Marshall who became Supreme Commander, and thus, from a public standpoint, the standard-bearing victor over Nazi tyranny and aggression, but General Eisenhower. And as Roosevelt feared and predicted, 50 years have long since passed, and while I wouldn't suggest that nobody knows who George Marshall was, knowledge of General Marshall tends to be confined to historians and students of warfare and statecraft. He has essentially disappeared from public memory. What happened? Well, what happened was that Roosevelt, on reflection, had decided that Marshall was indispensable to him personally and to the war effort generally. I could not sleep at night, he told Marshall, if you were out of the country. Marshall, in Dean Acheson's words, had an extraordinary ability to see the problems of wartime, quote, far beyond the purely military considerations and the usual political ones, unquote, and he exuded by his very presence an air of authority and calm. There was no military glamour about him, Acheson wrote, 
and nothing of the martinet. He was, in a word, perfectly, and we may now say in retrospect, providentially situated at the Pentagon by Roosevelt's side. We will probably never know what Marshall thought about this. Was he personally disappointed or aggrieved? There is no evidence of it. Marshall, on principle, declined to write his memoirs. He thought that the instinct for self-justification distorts the thinking of any memoirist. And he thought it unseemly to profit from the discharge of what he regarded as his duty as an army officer and public servant. But he did consent to a series of extended interviews with his authorized biographer, Forrest Pogue, which formed the basis for much of Professor Pogue's four-volume life of George Marshall, published in the decades after Marshall's death in 1959. On the question of what must have been his supreme disappointment as a soldier, that is to say, the overlord command, Marshall is entirely laconic and almost without elaboration repeats Roosevelt's reasoning for keeping him in Washington. The charitable interpretation of this would be that Marshall recognized the circumstances and agreed with Roosevelt at the extents of personal ambition. The cynical interpretation would be that Marshall was indeed disappointed, but calculated that posterity would look on his selflessness with admiration. I tend to embrace the charitable interpretation I believe that no one achieves high political office or senior military rank without a fair portion of ambition, no matter how well disguised. But everything we know about Marshall argues that his disinterested wisdom about such things and his monumental self-discipline and self-control were entirely genuine. The origins of all this can never be known. and biographers seeking an explanation have scoured the comparatively bare cupboard of his innermost thoughts and reflections, his youthful exploits and incidents, what little is known outside his family of his private life without success. But the explanation is simple. Leadership, leadership at any rate of the kind Marshall exercised, that is to say statecraft as practiced in a democratic society, is an art, not a science. Just as the intense study of politics and political science does not make a successful politician, the qualities of mind and character that elevated George Marshall to Olympian status among his associates and contemporaries cannot be quantified, cannot be usefully compared to others, can be taught but not necessarily comprehended in the classroom. We can, however, get some guidance from what we know of General Marshall's career and habits. A collateral descendant of the second Chief Justice, John Marshall, and member of a prominent Virginia family. He was born in Pennsylvania, where his father engaged in business, and in accordance with family tradition, attended not West Point, but Virginia Military Institute. Even at VMI, his seriousness of intent and self-discipline were conspicuous. He took the business of being an officer seriously, and perhaps like most great soldiers, tended to concentrate on the substance of his responsibilities rather than a style of command. In a long military career, there are a few anecdotes about Marshall's flamboyant behavior, or dashing appearance, or memorable temperament. 
There is, by contrast, a long history of intense study of the business of military command and war, of absolute fidelity to his immediate duties and responsibilities, and to the ideals which had impelled him to embrace a military career. In the First World War, this resulted in his appointment as Chief of Staff to the commander of the American Expeditionary Force, General Pershing, who thereafter regarded the comparatively young Colonel Marshall as the most indispensable member of his staff and an obvious candidate for future promotion and leadership. And in his service to Pershing, we detect something of the same pattern that so impressed Dean Acheson. Marshall concerned himself not only with the obvious issues of tactics and strategy, but endeavored to master those aspects of command, logistics, supply, transportation, planning, diplomacy, politics, the study of human nature, that are often the difference between success and failure. It is noteworthy, noteworthy as well that army politics being what they are, Marshall's post-war rise was not as meteoric or as inevitable as General Pershing or anyone else might have suspected. The interwar contraction of the American Armed Forces constricted Marshall's progress as much as any officer's, and to this was added the animus of a fellow officer, Douglas MacArthur, who harbored grievances from Marshall's tenure in France. They clashed on numerous fronts, but one may be taken as representative of both individuals. In certain sectors of the Western Front, Army headquarters determined that the nearby presence of Marine Corps units, as well as the particular skills of Marines, made the Marine Corps the obvious troops to use in certain engagements. This was quite obvious to the practical-minded Marshal, whose objective was to win one battle in a larger struggle. By contrast, it was anathema to MacArthur, who despite his very considerable soldierly skills, considered rivalries between and among the services to be of equal if not greater importance. General MacArthur was a great commander who was acutely conscious of who got credit for what. Colonel, MacArthur, Colonel Marshall was a great soldier who regarded such considerations as a dangerous distraction. After the war, MacArthur outranked Marshall and as Chief of Staff in the early 1930s was in a position to thwart Marshall's advancement, which he did. But Marshall's reputation was not harmed in the long run by MacArthur's animus, and in his slow but steady rise through the ranks during the interwar years, he concerned himself not so much with self-interest as professional advancement, studying the very structure and institutional behavior of the Army itself, presiding over its various command and staff schools, and in one very characteristic way, planning for the future. Marshall kept track of what he regarded as capable and promising officers, and when the Second World War erupted on his watch as Chief of Staff, his little black notebook became indispensable in organizing and managing a United States Army called upon to fight a two-front world war. Included among those officers, of course, was MacArthur, and if we know nothing else about Marshall's qualities as a wartime leader, it is instructive to note that, th that Marshall refused to allow personal considerations to influence his conviction that MacArthur, for political as well as military reasons, should command American forces in the Pacific. By the same token, Marshall's understated qualities of leadership, organi organization, and skill had their own reward. For just as Douglas MacArthur was languishing in the Philippines when war broke out in Europe, 
George Marshall was promoted by Roosevelt to be chief of staff over the heads of several hundred senior officers and a dozen higher-ranking claimants to the title. It is difficult to fully appreciate the magnitude of the task Marshall faced on September 1st, 1939. Not only was the United States materially unprepared for war, the armed forces were modest in size, the industrial economy was still languishing in depression, but the political circumstances were unfavorable. The United States, and especially Congress through its various neutrality acts, did not just shrink temperamentally from participating in the war, but was officially neutral, to the extent even of preventing the United States from providing material assistance to opponents of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. Of course, FDR being FDR, certain ways were found to circumvent American neutrality, a subject for discussion on another occasion. And as Roosevelt said, when Germany invaded Poland, he could not expect Americans to remain neutral in thought it fell to Marshall, however, to become the public face of American preparedness in the event of war, to build and train armed forces numbered in the millions rather than the thousands, and to mobilize the industrial capacity of the United States not only to fight, but to supply the material needs of our allies as well as ourselves. Yet it is astonishing in retrospect to consider that when conscription was introduced on a temporary basis in 1940, it was reauthorized by Congress, very nearly on the eve of Pearl Harbor, by exactly one vote one year later. All of this was authorized by Roosevelt and by the executive departments he commissioned to prepare for war, but it was executed by General Marshall, who was tasked not only with guiding the president's thinking on strategic questions, an especially pertinent assignment once the United States and Great Britain combined forces, but in carrying out what the president proposed. Moreover, Marshall accomplished this task while retaining the professional respect and personal admiration of his colleagues and Congress, as well as the public, to whom he became the uniformed face of the war effort. And he did so while deliberately maintaining what he considered a responsible professional distance from President Roosevelt, FDR called very, very nearly everyone he encountered by their first name, if not a nickname. The sole exception to that was General Marshall. Moreover, during the war, Marshall began each day with a message to Roosevelt about the previous day's casualties in combat, a daily, and so Marshall believed, essential reminder to his political leader of the personal cost of the policies they pursued. It is at this juncture, I suppose, that I must usher through the door the figure we might regard as the George C. Marshall of the British war effort, Sir Alan Brooke, a pioneering artillery officer of the First World War, corps commander in France during the first nine months of the Second World War, and professional head of the British Army, and after January 1941, chief of the Imperial General Staff, the IGS being roughly the British equivalent of our Joint Chiefs, until the end of the war in the European and Pacific theaters. It is always difficult and a little dangerous to draw analogies between the British and American ways of war and the dual systems that were brought into uncomfortable alliance after Japan and Germany declared war on the United States. But there are certain parallel qualities and equivalent responsibilities at play. And in retrospect, 
Brooks' service in the shadow of Winston Churchill is very nearly as unheralded in his own country as Marshall's service in the shadow of Franklin Roosevelt is in his. Like Marshall, Brooke, who was raised, <coughs> excuse me, raised to the peerage after the war as Viscount Allen Brooke, combining his two names into one, never commanded troops in the field after becoming chairman of the Imperial General Staff. And like Marshall, he combined the organizational and administrative tasks of galvanizing the British war effort while dealing with the joys and sorrows of his political chief, Churchill. I might add here, too, that Brooke um, uh, cherished hopes, too, of commanding the uh, Operation Overlord, but by the time it happened, of course, it was clear that an American commander would, would be in charge. Here, however, there is a critical difference. For whereas Roosevelt tended to defer to Marshall on military and to a certain degree strategic questions, Allenbrook had no such luxury. While Britain's strength and prestige slowly declined relative to America's rise, Churchill as a parliamentary leader dominated his government in ways that Roosevelt could not. That is to say, the challenge of dealing with Churchill was a much more formidable task for Allenbrook than dealing with Roosevelt was for Marshall. Roosevelt, who had been Assistant Secretary of the Navy during the First World War and certainly brought a global strategic vision to the presidency, nevertheless did not regard himself as a military expert and was deeply reliant on Marshall's judgment. Churchill, by contrast, had been a professional soldier before he entered politics and did regard himself as a military expert, or at any rate as one who had thought long and hard about British foreign and defense policy and whose vindication about Hitler and his intentions had made him prime minister in Britain's hour of need. The culture and organization of the British and American armies are very different, and it is misleading at best to draw biographical analogies, but Alan Brooke was a familiar figure in the British army of his times, a son of a family from the lower ranks of the British aristocracy and an Ulsterman in a British army with a historically disproportionate number of fighting officers from Ulster, that is to say Northern Ireland, and from Scotland, Allenbrook was born in France and spent almost his entire childhood there before attending the Royal Military Academy at Woolwich, uh, which trained artillery officers. It may be a social note worth mentioning that while Marshall was very much a product of what we might call the American middle or upper middle class, Alan Brooke and Franklin Roosevelt were both aristocrats. Indeed, as Alan Brooke learned to his surprise during his first visit to the White House in 1942, Alan Brooke's father and FDR's father had been casually acquainted. To Alan Brooke's disadvantage, however, the ancestors' sweepstakes did him no good in relation to his chief. Churchill, after all, was the grandson of a duke and a direct descendant of the Duke of Marlborough, victor of the Battle of Blenheim. From his perspective, Allenbrook was a typical Ulster officer of his day, dour, slightly resident, reticent, almost Cromwellian in his steady devotion to duty and decidedly unromantic view of warfare. This was, of course, the exact opposite of Churchill, whose fundamental view of war, like statecraft, was romantic, even emotional in its way. To Allenbrook, war was a grim business that required his close attention to detail 
and with Britain's limited resources and vulnerability, a strong practical sense. Still, Allenbrook was a professional soldier with the same professional dedication that distinguished Marshall. During the First World War, for example, he had successfully adapted the French innovation of the rolling barrage technique of artillery fire to British gunners. In effect, scientifically anticipating where fire should be directed based on the movement of troops in reaction to the state of a battlefield. This was a skill which required a certain steadiness of nerves, which Allen Brooke possessed in abundance, and above all, an ability to anticipate how soldiers would react in certain situations. A shrewd, one might say, almost cold-blooded adaptation of military tactics to human nature. It was an analytical approach to war which would serve Allen Brooke well in his successful command of the British withdrawal to Dunkirk, a great military disaster which the British press and public succeeded in considering a victory of sorts. It was also an approach to war that appealed to Churchill, who in the wake of the French defeat in 1940, and in the midst of the Battle of Britain, when Eng England stood alone against a Germany which dominated the continent of Europe, needed to clean house and clear out the deadwood of the British defense establishment, to employ two cliches well suited to the early stages of war, and promoted Allenbrook. Here, however, we stumble upon an essential distinction between Marshall and Allenbrook. First, unlike Marshall, Allenbrook kept a daily diary of his tenure in service, or on other occasions wrote long letters to his wife, partly as a mechanism for recording things he wanted to remember, and partly as a means of letting off steam. When the war ended, and Brooks' tenure as chief was up, his professional career ended as well, and in company with a handful of honors and membership on various boards and honorary officers, he retired from public life. But Britain in that era was not especially generous to retired war heroes, and as the austere 1940s turned into the 50s, Allenbrook's financial situation became strained. He was forced to sell his small manor house and move to an adjacent cottage, and most distressing from my standpoint, Allenbrook, an amateur ornithologer and collector of antiquarian books on birds, was obliged to sell his collection. At this remove, and from this side of the Atlantic, it is appalling to contemplate that no benefactor emerged, no small movement was generated among his grateful countrymen to purchase the collection and present it back to him. Such circumstances, the professional head of the armed forces in World War II so strapped for cash as to sell his beloved bird books, is inconceivable in this country. But that was then and there. And it was just then that the British historian Sir Arthur Bryant persuaded Alan Brooke to publish his diary and letters, which, under Bryant's heavy edi editorship, was done in the late 1950s. To Alan Brooke's historical and financial benefit, but personal discomfort. For the public publication of the Alan Brooke diaries in 1957 and 1959, even in Arthur Bryant's comparatively bodlerized version, was the first inkling among the avalanche of post-war accounts and memoirs that Winston Churchill, as Churchill himself might have implied in his own distinctly self-serving memoirs, had not very nearly done everything right or nothing wrong as war leader. In fact, of course, Churchill had made his share of mistakes, 
or been saved from making others. But at the height of Churchill's mythical status in Britain and elsewhere, Allenbrook had the misfortune to be the first to break the spell. I don't wish here to overstate the case. Allenbrook held what we might now call conventional views about Churchill's actions, acknowledging that he had galvanized the British public, provided inspired leadership, and was the human dynamo behind Britain's heroic resistance to Hitler. But Allenbrook's diaries, which he characterized in it to his wife as a nightly release of pent-up emotion and immediate reaction to events, also exposed the thousand impractical ideas Churchill espoused. His petulance and occasional perversity, his rudeness and indifference to subordinates, above all his argumentative insistence, often late into the night, on regaling his top general, who was otherwise occupied, with what the general regarded, and usually correctly, as harebrained suggestions and vainglorious plans. Allenbrook's job, for which he was temperamentally unsuited, was serving as a sounding board for his political chief, and most painful of all, saying no when a no was required. Allenbrook, as soldier, was inspired by what he believed Britain was capable of achieving and ought to do. Churchill, as statesman, was propelled by a combination of inspired pugnacity and personal glory. Neither of these Churchillian instincts made much sense to Alan Brooke, and his diaries are replete with scenes and instances, some of them decidedly comic, of his continuing exasperation and exhaustion at the hands of Churchill when serious business was afoot. Unlike Marshall, who guided his political chief in an atmosphere of mutual respect, the steady, businesslike Allenbrook found himself nursemaid to an unpredictable and at times supremely impractical and insensitive genius. As I say, I do not wish to exaggerate the impression left by Allenbrook's diaries. He admired Churchill and was genuinely fond of him. But he was also realistic in his assessment of men and events and regarded Churchill with open eyes. And for his part, and to his credit, Churchill may have ranted and raved and raised his voice and orated at his long-suffering subordinate, but he always, without exception, took Alan Brooks' advice. There is a famous story, in fact, connected with this. Churchill's physician, Lord Moran, once reported to Alan Brooke that Churchill thought that he, Alan Brooke, hated Churchill. Alan Brooke was horrified at the suggestion. I don't hate him, he replied to Moran. I love him. But the minute I say yes to him when I ought to say no, I will cease to be of use to him. Marshall's political chief, Roosevelt, didn't survive him. And unlike Allenbrook, Marshall's post-war prestige interfered with his hopes for withdrawal from public duty. After 1945, indeed, Marshall had a second official life, first as a special presidential envoy to China during its civil war, then as Secretary of State during the early Cold War, best remembered now for his sponsorship of the so-called Marshall Plan for European Recovery. And finally, after a third retirement, as Secretary of Defense to succeed an incompetent predecessor in the early stages of the Korean War. Not to mention, of course, the award of the Nobel Peace Prize, back when the Nobel Peace Prize meant something. I think it was the first and I think still the only Nobel Peace Prize that's ever been awarded to a professional soldier. 
as well as a well-publicized charge of treason from Senator Joseph McCarthy. Reticent, judicious, even gentle by nature, General Marshall in his remaining years faded gradually from public view. Reticent, judicious, even laconic by nature, Field Marshal Allenbrook ended his days by disturbing his old chief and Churchill's family and admirers, but also by recasting the British version of the history of the Second World War. I have offered this brief introduction to these two figures from recent history because I'm interested in how historic reputations get established, how they involve, evolve over time, and why. I confess also that I was prompted to think along these lines by, of all people, President Trump, and not because of anything he's done, but by some things he has said. I don't mean this to be any, uh, any of this to be a criticism of the President, but I couldn't help but notice that whenever the subject of military leadership arises, he almost invariably mentions George Patton and Douglas MacArthur as his ideals. There's nothing wrong with this. Patton and MacArthur are important generals and interesting people with legions of admirers. And I'm willing to believe that the president could probably name other military leaders he admires in American history. But Patton and MacArthur are admired as much for being well known as for being great captains. You can probably find a fair number of football coaches and motivational speakers who invoke MacArthur and Patton, even quote them, without being able to tell you precisely what Patton and MacArthur did to make themselves famous. Of course, their popular appeal is obvious. Both were self-dramatizing, self-publicizing characters who drew attention to themselves almost as much by their personal behavior as by their considerable military prowess. Then, too, they were, for the most part, commanders in the field, not bureaucrats behind desks drafting memoranda, counseling political leaders. The romance of the battlefield is very different from and of much greater interest to the public than the drama of plotting strategy or attending conferences. Yet I would argue that while the outcome of the Second World War would probably have been the same if Patton and MacArthur had never lived, I am not entirely certain that the same could be said if events hadn't moved, maneuvered Allenbrook and Marshall into high office and supreme responsibility. Contradictory as it may seem, Marshall and Allenbrook were self-effacing men of ambition and of hard determination. The obituary words of The Economist about Allenbrook could apply to both. Quote, in his demanding and abrupt efficiency, he knew when to scold, when to encourage, when to protect. Men admired, feared, and liked him, in that order, perhaps. He became, in peculiar, the conscience of the army, a dark, incisive, round-shouldered Irish eagle, the reluctant chairman of a council of war, frustrating in selfless but far from patient service those talents that could not otherwise but have forced him into the company of the great captains. In short, in coming to comprehend history and the play of character and notoriety in the outcome of events, we tend to underestimate some while overvaluing others and miss some essential points in what constitutes leadership and what defines success. Thank you.